0: Good morning. Welcome once again to Hiawatha. We are still glad that you're here with us, whether in person or online. My name is Jesse Splann. I am one of the elders here at Hiawatha. And one of the privileges of being an elder here is getting to preach once or twice a year. And it's great to be back. I had a sabbatical last year, which was wonderful. And now I'm back, and it's great to be back. It's great to see you all. It's great to be up here. So If you've been at Hiawatha at all recently, you know we've been in 2 Corinthians. And we are almost done with the book. This week is the second to last sermon. Chris will finish it off next week. But let us get into it. So, title of this sermon, Your Restoration is What We Pray For. Most of chapter 13, the last four verses will be next week. But I will read through it, and then we will just walk through the passage a chunk at a time and see what God has to say for us, what encouragement he has for us from this passage, what exhortation, uh, what comfort. 2 Corinthians 13, one through 10 This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Jesus, we thank you for this passage of 2 Corinthians. Thank you that you inspired Paul to write this with the help of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would speak through me your words, that everyone sitting in this room and everyone listening online would uh, hear from it what you have for them to hear, and I pray that all of us would see you and see the gospel and see the cross and the empty tomb a little more clearly and delight in them a little more because of this. Amen. Alright, so if you've been around Hiawatha for the last three chapters, Paul's been having this uh, debate kind of, although it's a letter so the other people aren't present. He's been responding to some criticisms from the Corinthians. After Paul had left, he had been in Corinth several times, and the most recent time after he'd left, these other so-called super apostles had come in and had been doing these impressive, miraculous things, had been speaking very eloquently, and doing all these things that Paul had not done. And the Corinthians were like, you know, these guys are more impressive than Paul was. What's up with that? And it got to the point where they started to think, you know, maybe... Paul wasn't, maybe Christ wasn't even really in Paul. Maybe he was just this guy who came and said some stuff. So this is what's been going on. And Paul here is going to wrap up this argument that he has of why he is not inferior to these so-called super-impostles. So Paul says it's the third time that he's come to them. The first time he came is recorded in Acts chapter 18. Now, when Paul came the first time, there was no church. There were no Christians in Corinth. Paul came, he preached the gospel. Many people believe a church was formed. And Paul stayed, actually, for a year and a half the first time, uh, Acts 18 says. And he was teaching people, preaching to people, doing life with them, helping them grow. So he was there for 18 months. Many people believed. Then he left because he was going to other areas to plant other churches. He eventually came back a second time, and that second time was sometime between Acts 18 and the letter of 2 Corinthians. And he was there for a shorter amount of time than the first time, but doing some of the same stuff, preaching the gospel, encouraging those who were believers to continue in the faith. And then he left again to go and encourage other churches and plant some more new churches. And sometime after that, now he hears what's been going on, and now he writes 2 Corinthians. And now we are reading it. So the second part of verse 1, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy at this point. And in Deuteronomy, that law that was laid down basically was God saying, all right, if someone is accused of something, there has to be more than one witness. So that someone can't just come and say about someone they don't like, well, they threatened to kill me, or they took my stuff, or did this or that, and then they're punished. God says, no, there has to be at least two witnesses to make sure It's not just this antagonism person to person. And so Paul here is saying that evidence has been established. What are those witnesses? My previous visits. My first two visits are the witnesses. So my coming this third time will be the third witness. He says, this isn't something where I just came once and said something. You have proof over a long period of time, over multiple visits. I was there a year and a half the first time that you spent with me. So this is not something sudden that's just coming. This has been a long time coming. I've established what needs to be established. I've provided witnesses in my other visits. And Paul says, in those other visits, with this evidence, I warned those who were sinning, and I warned all the others. A quick recap, this is just some of the sins that were going on in the Corinthian church. Sexual immorality of all types, including incest. Stealing from each other, and this includes just Stealing, like taking something that belongs to others, but also presenting many and frivolous lawsuits against other believers and then swindling them, convincing them to go in on you know, bad business deals or other things where they're going to end up losing money. So that was all happening. Misusing communion. So when we do communion, we've got it on the table there, but in this time, in Bible times, when they did communion, it would actually be a meal. They'd get together, they'd sit down at a table, and they'd have bread, and they'd have wine, and they'd actually spend some time eating together. And Paul says, so you all come to communion, which is supposed to be a remembrance of Christ's death and what he's done for us. And instead, some of you are drinking so much wine, you're getting drunk. Others of you are gorging yourselves on food to the point where there's not any left for other people that come. So you're all coming, some are leaving drunk, some are leaving hungry. You've got your own homes to eat and drink in. That's not the purpose of communion. You're misusing it. You're being selfish with it idolatry, which in the case of First uh, and Second Corinthians is following just anyone besides Jesus. So they're following the super apostles. Also in First Corinthians, if you go back to the beginning of that book, Paul talks about how some of the Corinthians are saying, well, I follow Paul because he was the one who came and preached the gospel. And some are saying, well, I followed Apollos, which is someone Paul sent after he had left to continue his work. And then someone's like, well, I'll be really righteous. I'll say, I follow Jesus. But that's what's going on instead of focusing on christ they're focusing on no no no, i'm all about paul no i'm all about apollos no i'm all about the super apostles and paul's like whoa time out it's not about me it's not about apollos it's not about the super apostles it's about jesus we're all following jesus here we're not following me we're not following some other guy and then grumbling and boasting were also occurring now there are a lot more sins that were going on. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is some of the big ones that get mentioned multiple times throughout First and Second Corinthians. So there's a lot going on that shouldn't be going on. And remember, this is among believers. The believers are uh, participating in these things. So Paul says, this was going on, and I warned them. I warned them when I was there the first time. I warned them when I came back the second time. I warned them in the letter of 1 Corinthians, and I'm warning you again now in 2 Corinthians. And what is a warning? A warning is basically saying to someone, not just in this case, but in general, watch out or this bad thing will happen. So to your child, you say, don't play in the street so that you don't get hit by a car. The warning is don't play in the street because this bad thing will follow if you do. You'll be hit by a car. So what is the warning that Paul's actually speaking here? Paul says, if I come again, I will not spare them, the ones who are sinning. So Paul says, when I came the first time, I was gentle with you. I was humble. I was patient. When I came the second time, it was the same way. And he actually says earlier in the book, I was going to come another time already, but I didn't because I knew that I wouldn't be able to be gentle with you. I wouldn't be able to be patient. I would have to be severe, and I didn't want to be. So instead, I chose not to come in person, and I wrote this letter so that I could have some severity in the letter, but not have to be as severe as I would have had to be in person. But Paul says, I'm warning you now, if I come the third time, I won't spare you. I will be severe. Paul says, I've established this. I've established witness. I've come before I've been gentle with you, and you're seeking proof. And Paul says, okay, I'm warning you now. If I come again, it's not going to be like before, and you're not going to enjoy it. And the ironic thing is, the Corinthians are bringing this on themselves. Look what it says. It says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Paul says, I don't want to come and be severe, but now you're pushing me into it. You're putting this on me. You're saying, prove that Christ is speaking in you. Prove it, prove it. We don't believe this. We don't believe that, that you've done before. Paul says, all right. Like, I'm warning you now, I can come and I can prove that. I can speak boldly, I can speak strongly, I can speak severely. I haven't chosen not to do that before because I wasn't capable. I chose not to do it before to spare you, to help you, to have compassion on you. And he says, all right, if this is what you want, I can do it. So this goes back to the so-called super apostles. So basically, the super apostles were boasting that they were better than others. So they were boasting that they were better speakers, that they had done more for God, that, you know, they had done this, that, and the other thing, that they had been given more supernatural visions and revelations. Yeah, God spoke to me. God gave me this vision of the future. He gave me this revelation of himself or of something else. Basically, that they were outwardly much more impressive, that you would hear them speak, that you would see both their presence while they were speaking and also the things they were saying and think, whoa. Whoa. That's so much more impressive than the Paul, stuff Paul said. Paul's really not that great a speaker, which he admits in 2 Corinthians. He says, yeah, I can write well, but my speaking, in some ways, it's kind of weak. I'm not that impressive of a speaker. And he wasn't speaking about the supernatural things he'd experienced. He wasn't talking about what he had done. He was talking just about the gospel. So that comes back to that. There's a lot more we could say about this. But chapters 10 through 12 of Second Corinthians are Paul answering some of those specific uh, objections to his ministry. So if you want to hear more about that, you can just go back and listen to the last four or six sermons in Second Corinthians and uh, get all that. But that's what's going on now. So Paul's warning them. He's saying, I can come back, but you're not going to like it. He says, you're the reason that I would come back like this because you want the proof. And the reason you want the proof is because you've been listening to these so-called super apostles who really aren't that super and aren't actually apostles. Paul says in chapter 12, they're actually false apostles. They're actually not teaching the gospel. They're teaching something else. So now Paul's going to go on. He's kind of established, all right, this is what you want. I can give it to you, but you don't like it. Here's why you want this. But now... So now he's going to start making his argument, here's the proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now he's going to lay out for the Corinthians. You want the proof? I can give it when I come, but let me give it in this letter just in case. Hopefully this will be something that will spur you on to Christ and I won't have to come and be severe. So the first thing he says, He, Christ, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Notice that this verse is in present tense. The section before this, Paul is speaking of things that had happened in the past. And we'll see after this, Paul is going to speak of things that will happen in the future. So he was, he's saying, this is what happened in the past when I was present. This is what will happen in the future if I come again. But now he's speaking present tense. He's saying, I'm not with you. I'm apart from you and I'm writing you this letter. But Christ is with you. And he's not weak. He's powerful among you. Corinthians, don't you realize that you have believed that Christ is present in your midst, that he is powerful among you? So what's the proof that Paul offers? It's not anything in himself. He doesn't say, well, actually, I am worthy because I did this thing, or I spoke in this way. He says, no, 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 the proof isn't me at all. The proof is Christ among you in power. Look at what Christ is doing among you. Look at what Christ is doing in the Corinthian church. Christ is there. He's powerful. He's the proof that what I said was true. Because I spoke of Christ. I spoke of what Christ would do, and now it's happening. That's the proof. I said this would happen and that would happen, and now it's happening. Christ's presence validates my apostleship, Paul says. Not these other things. Not the things the super apostles are talking about. Those things don't validate it. Christ validates it. Christ is the proof of what's happening. And now he's going to lay out what Christ was doing, how Christ did things, and how that relates to how Paul came to them. So he says, Christ is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For Christ was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Now I should point out, when Paul says in verse 4 that Christ was crucified in weakness, He doesn't mean by that Christ was too weak to avoid crucifixion, that Christ being crucified was a show that Christ wasn't really God or that he wasn't powerful enough to avoid crucifixion or overcome that happening. What he's saying is, no, 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 the very act of being crucified is an act of weakness. Christ was beaten, he was mocked, he was hung on a tree and killed. And according to Old Testament law, to be killed in that way was a curse, So Christ was cursed, Christ was beaten, Christ was weakened, Christ was crucified. He was crucified in weakness. As people saw that happening, it appeared to them that Christ was very weak. But it's not that he was actually weak, that he didn't want to and he couldn't overcome it. That was the plan. The plan that God the Father and Christ and the Holy Spirit made from the beginning of eternity. That was the plan. And Paul's saying, just like Christ was weak in crucifixion, but now lives by the power of God. Now God shows through him powerfully in his life. That's how I came to you. I came to you weak like Christ. That's why I was gentle. That's why I was humble. That's why I wasn't trying to be impressive. I was being like Christ in the same way that he came and didn't try and be impressive. He was humble. He was lowly. Paul says, if Christ is in me, And I'm proclaiming that, of course, that's the way it's going to look, because that's how Christ was. How could it look any different? It's ironic that the Corinthians were looking for supernatural manifestations. They're like, oh, the super apostles, they had these visions, they had uh, these revelations, they were so glorious. And so they're looking for all these other things, when ironically, they had already seen the most impressive supernatural event of all time. Jesus Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the grave is the most awesome and impressive supernatural event that has ever occurred or will ever occur. So, Hiawatha and people listening online and watching online, if you think to yourself, yeah, this is great, but man, I just wish I could see something awesome, something supernatural, something like in the Old Testament, the things God used to do, I wish I could see something like that. Look at the cross. Look at Jesus That's the most impressive supernatural event of all time. God died, and in doing so, conquered sin and reconciled us to God when we were far away from Him. And then, He rose from the dead. God died, and He rose from the dead and conquered sin. There's nothing more awesome than that. There's nothing more impressive than that. There's nothing we will ever see that will surpass that. That is the most awesome supernatural event of all time. So now Paul kind of wraps up the first phase of his argument with this. He says, all right, like I can come. You're not going to like it. I've established witness. You're not looking at the right thing. You're looking at me or you're looking at the super apostles. You should be looking at Jesus. You're longing and hungering for all these supernatural things, but you've already seen the greatest supernatural thing. You've seen the cross, which is the most awesome thing of all time. You've seen and heard about Jesus Christ raised from the dead who walked out of the tomb alive. There's nothing more awesome than those two things. And I'm reflecting Christ. Like Christ was, so am I. And how could it be otherwise? Because he's in me. That's the proof. You're looking in the wrong places. Christ is present among you. Christ was present in me. The proof is that he's accomplishing what I said he would. Because all I was doing was saying the things that he always accomplishes. So now that Paul's done that, he's going to turn the tables on the Corinthians. He says, okay, Corinthians, you've been testing me. You've been evaluating me. You have been examining me, trying to determine whether or not what I'm doing is of God or not of God. Well, guess what? It's time to examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Quit looking at me. Quit making it about me. It's about Jesus, not about me. But you want to talk about testing? You want to talk about evaluation? Okay, we can do that. Test yourselves. Evaluate yourselves to see whether Christ is in you. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So Paul turns the tables. They've been testing him. They've been examining him. Now he's flipping that back on them. And notice he doesn't say, all right, you've been testing me, I'm going to test you. He says, no, test yourselves. Evaluate yourselves. Now, if you've been at Hiawatha for any length of time, it might seem strange that Paul says this. We talk a lot at Hiawatha because the Bible talks a lot about it, about how we can't bring anything to God in of ourselves that's of worth to him. Now, we have value because we're created in his image, because he loves us. But in terms of salvation, we can't get to God. We can't do enough good to please him. We come to God saying, God, I need your help, and I can't do it myself. And God says, that's all right. I don't expect you to do it yourself. Jesus did it for you. That's what the cross was about. That's what him walking out of the empty tomb was about. The fact that you can't save yourself, but I did it for you. That Jesus paid the debt we could never pay and gave us the benefit that we didn't deserve from it. So knowing that, you might think, well, this is really weird that Paul tells them to examine and test themselves. That sounds like work, like they're trying to do something, come up with something. What is going on here? That seems really weird. Remember what a test is, not just in the context of 2 Corinthians, but just in general in life. What is a test? A test is something you do to evaluate what is already present. So if I wanna play soccer on a soccer team, depending on the level of the team, I'm gonna have to do tryouts, which is just another word for a test. And when I go to tryouts, they're going to evaluate what skill set is already present. And based on the results of that we will determine what comes of that. If I am in a math class and I go to take a math test, I better not walk in with the thought, man, this is great, I don't know this material at all, I haven't studied it, I don't know it. It's gonna be so great to take this test and learn it all while I'm taking the test. No, that's not what a test is for. A test evaluates what is already present. So Paul here is not saying, do something to get yourself to God, or do something to make yourself more favorable to him. He's saying, look at yourself and evaluate what is already present. So then that leads to the question, okay, what is the test then? How do you test that? The test is, is Jesus Christ in you? Hiawatha Church, people watching online, test yourselves, examine yourselves. Is Jesus Christ in you? Not, have you done a lot of good stuff? Not, have you come to church on a regular basis? Not, do you read your Bible every day? None of the things I just said are bad things, but those are not things that will grant you favor with God in and of themselves. Is Jesus Christ in you? Look at Jesus' words from Matthew 7. He says, at, at the end, at the end of time, when everyone stands before God in judgment, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that final day where people stand before Christ, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a shocking statement in many ways. These people come who are going to be excluded from eternity, who are going to be apart from Christ. And they say, wait, 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 wait! but I did all the right stuff. I prophesied, I cast out demons, I did mighty works, and I did them in your name. It's not like I was doing it for myself. Like, I was proclaiming you. I was doing works in your name, supernatural things. And notice Jesus' response. He doesn't say, no, you didn't do any of that. He says, that doesn't matter. I don't know you. It's not about what you did or didn't do. It's about, do I know you or do I not know you? In verse 21 at the beginning, he says, those who enter the kingdom of heaven are the ones who do the will of God. What is the will of God? Well, look at what he says the criteria is, whether or not he knows you. The will of God is for you to know Jesus Christ. People of Hiawatha, if you're wondering just in general or specifically, what's God's will for my life? What does God want? What's the will of God? The primary thing that God wants from every person alive right now and every person who will ever live is that they would know his son, Jesus Christ. That is the will of God. Not that they do things for him. Not that they prophesy in his name, cast out demons, do mighty works. Not that they stand up and preach a bunch of sermons. Those are all good things. Those are all things God empowers to bring himself glory. But the primary thing he wants, the most important thing, is that you would know Jesus Christ. That is the test. Is Jesus Christ in you? Do you know him? And people of Hiawatha, if you're here and you are a Christian, Look at what the passage says. Do you not realize this? If you're a Christian, Jesus Christ is in you. If you have believed, he is in you. But it's easy to forget that sometimes. Realize, remember afresh today that Jesus Christ is in you. And if you're here this morning, if you're sitting in the room or you're listening online, and you know that you failed the test, you're like, well, no, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe that. I was just curious, so I came, or someone invited me. I didn't know there was going to be a test. What's going on? If you fail the test, know this. And we'll talk more about this later in the passage. It'll be more clear. But be encouraged by this fact. Jesus Christ wants you to know him today. Ultimately, the reason that you're here in the room or listening to me online is not because someone invited you or because you were curious. Those are parts of the reason, but ultimately it's because today Jesus wanted you to hear that though you fail the test, he wants to know you. That though you fail the test, he loves you. That though you fail the test, it doesn't matter that you haven't done the right stuff because no one's done enough of the right stuff except Jesus. It matters that we believe that Jesus did what we never could. That he saved us where we couldn't save ourselves. So be encouraged by that. And we'll come back to that at the end. So, is Jesus Christ in you? And if you're sitting here this morning and you've thought your whole life Jesus Christ was in you, but you realize that you were evaluating Christianity, not on that, but based on stuff you had done or things you knew, and you realize, oh, I was taking the wrong test. I was taking a test that God says is invalid today is the day of salvation. Believe again today. Believe for the first time today. Jesus wants to know you. All of us at some point in our life were at a point where we failed the test. All of us. All of us tried to pass it on our own. All of us failed to do so. And all of us came to the point where we said, Jesus, only you can help me. Only you can pass the test. You already passed it when you died, when you rose from the grave. I believe that you've done what I never can. I believe that you want me, even though I don't deserve you. I believe that you love me. I believe that you want to know me. So, now, Paul, in typical Paul fashion, speaks confusingly about something that actually is not very confusing when you kind of figure out what he's saying. So he says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. So verse 6, he's not saying, I hope that as you evaluate us, you'll be able to tell me whether or not we passed the test. He says, I know already that Christ is in me. I know that I've passed the test, but you don't realize it. So verse 6, Paul is just saying, I hope that you Corinthians will come to realize what we already know that we have passed the test. And then in 7, he's saying, but even though we hope that, we would rather you pass the test thinking that we failed it than that you think that we passed it and fail it yourself. Basically, in 6 and 7, he's saying, we care more about what happens to you than we do about what you think of us. He says, we've passed the test. I've just laid out proof that I passed the test. But my primary concern is not that you think that I passed. It's that you pass it. It's that Christ is in you. It's that you know him. And I would rather you think poorly of me and pass the test than think highly of me and fail the test. That's why I came to you how I did. That's why I didn't make it about me. That's why I didn't try and be impressive. Because I was concerned with you and the state of your soul and the state of your well-being. Not about what you thought of me. Not if you thought I was impressive. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think about me. It matters that you pass the test. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Paul says he cannot do anything against the truth, but only for it. And what is the truth? What truths have we seen in this passage? The truth that Jesus was crucified in weakness and lives by the power of God. The truth that Jesus Christ is in us. The truth, Paul says, of himself and the other true apostles, that we are weak in him. Like Christ was crucified in weakness, we are weak in him. Just like he lives by the power of God, we live with him by the power of God. Because he's in us. How could it be otherwise? The truth that we cannot do anything against Christ, but only for Christ. And the truth of verse 9. The truth that Paul is glad when he's weak, but the Corinthians are strong. That's the truth that Paul can't work against, but only for. The truth of Jesus. The truth of who Jesus is, of what he's done. Paul says, of course that's what I'm doing. How could it be otherwise? Because Christ is in me. I couldn't come and do anything else. This is how it would have to be. This is what God is doing. The last part of verse 9, your restoration is what we pray for. Those of you in the room, those of you watching online or listening online later who failed the test, who either knew you had failed the test before you came this morning or thought you had passed but realized you were taking the wrong test and have failed, know that your restoration is what we pray for. As a body at Hiawatha, that is what we want for you. Not to tear you down, but to have you restored. Primarily to God, and then to us. Know that what Christ wants is your restoration. He wants not to destroy you, but to heal you. He wants to know you. Your restoration is what we pray for. For those who have passed the test, who are believers, when we sin because we still sin, know that in those moments, your restoration is what Christ wants. If you're struggling with sin right now, what Christ wants is not to tear you down, not to destroy you, but to restore you. He wants your restoration. And so he brings things that can be painful. He brings things that are uncomfortable to drive us back to him to show us that he's better than the sin that we're chasing after, to remind us that he's sweeter, that he's more satisfying, to remind us that he knows us, that he wants us, that he wants restoration. Hiawatha Church, your restoration is what God wants, is what Christ longs for. Your restoration is what we want as leaders of Hiawatha. Finally, verse 10 For this reason I write these things while I am away, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. We're going to look just for a few minutes at authority in this passage, in this verse. So, this verse tells us a few things about authority. One, that it's from God, authority that the Lord has given, which means that it's good. It's easy in today's world to think of authority just in general across the board as a bad thing because we see so many negative examples of it. But authority itself is not evil, it's a gift from God. But like all things God gives, it can be abused, it can be twisted. Authority is not bad, but bad use of authority is evil. Authority is from God, authority is a gift. The Lord has given it. It's not something we earn, it's not something we deserve, it's something God gives. Authority is for building up, not for tearing down. So, knowing this, what should the use of the authority that God has given look like for us in the church? Let's look at Jesus' words from Matthew 20. He's talking to his apostles who were debating with themselves who was the best, who was going to be at Jesus' right hand, who was going to be number two. They're like, okay, Jesus, obviously you're number one. But when all is said and done, who's going to be number two? Can we figure that out? Like, I want to be number two and my brother can be number three. Like, is that okay with you? That sounds good to us. And Jesus responds to them with several things, and this is part of that. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does the exercising of Christ like authority look like in the church? It looks like serving, not lording over or dominating. It looks like giving, not taking. It looks weak, it looks unimpressive, because it's not about the person exercising the authority, it's about Jesus. Because it's not about the person exercising authority looking good or looking powerful. It's about using that authority to bring restoration to people, to build people up. And so because of that, it looks weak and looks unimpressive. Basically, it looks like Jesus, who came and served us. He was not served by us, though he was the one who most deserved to be served. Jesus, who came and paid a ransom with his life he didn't come and collect a ransom for us that he would have had the right to do he could have come and demanded ransom from us and that would have been the death of all of us but instead he gave his life and he died to pay the ransom for us and occasionally as we see in verse 10 use of authority looks severe and we see that in Jesus a few times in the Gospels where he'll say severe things. There's one point where Peter, one of his apostles, is arguing with him. And Peter's saying, no, no, you're not going to die. You're not going to do that. We're going to do these other things. And Peter, Jesus, in response, doesn't say, now, Peter, I know you don't understand this. I'm going to just gently explain to you why what you're saying is wrong. No, he says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. He verbally just shuts Peter down. He's not gentle about it. He's not kind about it. He's like, no, what you're saying is evil and it's wrong. And you're done. But that's still loving. He's still doing it for the sake of building Peter up, not for tearing him down. So sometimes authority looks severe. But that should not be in general how it looks. Now, those of you at Hiawatha who have been given authority to various degrees, those who lead ministries... Those who teach in kids' church. Leaders of the men's and the women's ministry. Those who lead community groups. Those who lead other ministries. You have been given authority. That authority comes from God. That authority is a gift. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. And the point of that authority is to build up the body of Hiawatha, not to tear it down. Are you using your authority to serve and to give Or are you using it to lord over and dominate and to take? Does your authority sometimes look weak and unimpressive? Or do you make the use of your authority at Hiawatha about looking good? Now I'm going to speak for a minute to myself and the other elders. So if you're not an elder, what I'm going to say now does not apply to you. You're not responsible for this. But it's good to hear it for everyone. For myself and the elders at Hiawatha, we have been given great authority in the church. Let us never forget that authority is from God, not from ourselves. Let us never forget we don't deserve that authority. We don't have that authority because we're better than the rest of Hiawatha. We have that authority because God graciously gave it. And God gave that authority for the building up of the church. And we had better use it to build up the church, not to tear it down. We had better use it to feed the sheep not to feed on the sheep ourselves. Elders of Hiawatha, let us pray that God never allows us to forget where that authority comes from and what its purpose is. And may we always be willing to look unimpressive and weak for the sake of the body, rather than trying to look impressive and build ourselves up. May we never forget what Christ did. And in those times where we have to be severe, may we not forget that that severity is still for the building up of the body, not for the building up of ourselves. Don't forget elders. Don't forget Jesse. Ezekiel 34, where God makes it very clear that those who misuse his authority, especially in eldership and high levels of authority, God says, if you do that, I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to replace you with authority that does what I want. I'm not going to tolerate that. And may we rejoice in the fact that when we fail, because we are not Jesus, and so we do not do this perfectly, that Christ says, yeah, you messed up, but your restoration is what I pray for. Your restoration is what I want. I want you back. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to heal this situation. I'm going to build you up not tear you down. So, what application do we draw from this? Hiawatha, remember that Jesus Christ is powerful among us. Jesus Christ is here right now today, and he's here powerfully. He's powerful among us to build up and to heal and to make himself known. Remember that your restoration is what we pray for. For all of us at Hiawatha, Jesus desires to be restored to us. If you're not restored to him, that's his greatest desire. That's your greatest need. If you have been restored to him, remember that because it's true. And when you sin, when we sin, remember that his restoration is still what is longed for. He still desires us to be restored to him. Hiawatha, test yourselves. Is Jesus Christ in you? Have you believed? If not, you're taking the wrong test. If so, rejoice in that, that God has saved you. And if not, know that right now, that is God's primary desire from you. The thing he most wants is to be restored to you. The thing he most wants is for you to be restored, to have a relationship with him, to know him. He loves you and he wants you. And then finally, remember that God-given authority is for building up, not for tearing down. It's for making Christ look impressive, not for making ourselves look impressive. Let's pray.